Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 20 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth Woodville, Chapter 2, Part 2 The Queen had, in council, appointed May 4th for her son's coronation. His false uncle, however, did not bring him to London till that day. Edward V had entered the city, surrounded by officers of the Duke of Gloucester's retinue, who were all in deep mourning for the death of the late monarch. At the head of this posse rode Gloucester himself, habited in black, with his cap in his hand, oft-times bowing low, and pointing out his nephew, who wore the royal mantle of purple velvet, to the homage of the citizens. Edward V was at first lodged at the Bishop of Eli's palace, but as the good bishop, in common with all the high clergy, was faithful to the heirs of Edward IV, the young king was soon transferred to the regal apartments in the tower, under pretense of awaiting his coronation. Gloucester's next object was to get possession of Prince Richard, then safe with the queen. After a long and stormy debate between the ecclesiastical peers and the temporal peers, at a council held in the star chamber, close to Elizabeth's retreat, it was decided that there might be sanctuary men and women, but as children could commit no crime for which an asylum was needed, the privileges of sanctuary could not be extended to them. Therefore the Duke of Gloucester, who was now recognized as Lord Protector, could possess himself of his nephew by force, if he pleased. The Archbishop of Canterbury was unwilling that force should be used, and he went, with the deputation of the temporal peers, to persuade Elizabeth to surrender her son. When they arrived at the Jerusalem chamber, the archbishop urged that the young king required the company of his brother, being melancholy without a playfellow. To this, Elizabeth replied, Troweth the protector. Ah, pray God, he may prove a protector. That the king doth lack a playfellow? Can none be found to play with the king but only his brother, which hath no wish to play because of sickness? As though princes, as young as they be, could not play without their peers, or children could not play without their kindred, with whom, for the most part, they agree worse than with strangers. At last she said, My lord, and all my lords now present, I will not be so suspicious as to mistrust your truths. Then, taking young Richard by the hand, she continued, Lo, here is this gentleman, whom I doubt not would be safely kept by me, if I were permitted. And well do I know, there be some such deadly enemies to my blood, that, if they wist where any lay in their own bodies, they would let it out if they could. 
the desire of a kingdom knoweth no kindred brothers have been brothers bane and may the nephews be sure of the uncle each of these children are safe while they be asunder notwithstanding i here deliver him and his brother's life with him into your hands and of you i shall require them before god and man faithful be ye i wot well and power ye have if ye list to keep them safe but if ye think i fear too much yet beware ye fear not too little and therewithal continued she to the child farewell mine own sweet son god send you good keeping let me kiss you once ere you go for god knoweth when we shall kiss together again and therewith she kissed and blessed him and turned her back and wept leaving the poor innocent child weeping as fast as herself when the archbishop and the deputation of lords had received the young duke they brought him into the star chamber where the lord protector took him in his arms with these words now welcome my lord with all my very heart he then brought him to the bishop's palace at st paul's and from thence honorably through the city to the young king at the tower out of which they were never seen abroad meantime preparations went on night and day in the abbey and the vicinity for the coronation of edward v even the viands for the banquet were bought which hall declares were afterwards spoilt and thrown away on the thirteenth of june richard of gloucester called a council at the tower ostensibly to fix the precise time of the coronation but in reality to ascertain which of the lords were in earnest to have young edward for their king the first attack on elizabeth took place at this council table when gloucester after finding hasties incorruptible in his fealty to the heirs of edward the fourth broke out into a strain of invective against him as leagued with that which dame gray called his brother's wife who in conjunction with jane shore had by their sorceries withered his arm he showed his arm which all present well knew had been long in that state hastings being about to deny any alliance with the queen or the powers of darkness was rudely interrupted dragged forth to the tower yard and beheaded without trial before gloucester's dinner was served the same morning hastings had exulted much on hearing the news that lord richard gray the queen's son and earl rivers her brother whom he especially hated had been put to death at pontefract from that moment elizabeth found her worst anticipations more than realized the next blow was the attempt made at st paul's cross by dr shaw to prove her marriage invalid and her children illegitimate this man however overshot his mark by attacking cicely of york richard's mother he repeated the scandals her son clarence had cast upon her name and reaped no fruits but disgrace for his blundering malice soon afterwards the faction of the duke of gloucester presented a petition to prevent the crown from falling to the issue of the pretended marriage between king edward and elizabeth gray made without the assent of the lords of the land and by the sorcery of the said elizabeth and her mother jacquetta as the public voice is through the land privily and secretly in a chamber without proclamation by bands according to the laudable custom of the church of england the said king edward being married and troth plight a long time before to one eleanor butler daughter to the old earl of shrewsbury 
a forced recognition of Richard as king, in the hall of Crosby House, his town residence, followed the presentation of this petition, and from that day, June 26th, the son of Elizabeth was considered deposed. The coronation of Richard III took place ten days after. Among the gloomy range of fortresses belonging to the tower, tradition has pointed out the Porculus Tower as the scene of the murder of the young princes. The royal children were probably removed to this building when their uncle came to take possession of the regal apartments in the tower on the 4th of July. Forthwith, the two young princes were both shut up, and all their people removed, but only one, called Black Will, or Will Slaughter, who was set to serve them, and four keepers to guard them. The young king was heard to say, sighingly, I would mine uncle would let me have my life, though he taketh my crown. After which time the prince never tied his points, nor anything attended to himself, but with that young babe, his brother, lingered in thought and heaviness till the traitorous deed delivered them from wretchedness. During Richard's progress to the north, he roused Sir James Tyrrell from his pallet bed in his guard chamber one night at Warwick, and sent him to destroy the royal children. Sir Robert Brackenbury refused to cooperate, but gave up the keys of the tower for one night to the usurper's emissary. Then Sir James Tyrrell devised that the princes should be murdered in bed, to the execution whereof he appropriated Miles Forrest, one of their keepers, a fellow flesh-bred in murder. And to him he joined one John Dighton, his own horse-keeper, a big broad square knave all their other attendants being removed from them, and the harmless children in bed, these men came into their chamber, and suddenly lapping them in the clothes, smothered and stifled them till thoroughly dead. Then laying out their bodies in the bed, they fetched Sir James to see them, who caused the murderers to bury them at the stair foot, deep in the ground, under a heap of stones. Then rode Sir James in great haste to King Richard, and showed him the manner of the murder, who gave him great thanks, but allowed not their burial in so vile a corner, but would have them buried in consecrated ground. Sir Robert Brackenbury's priest then took them up, and where he buried them was never known, for he died directly afterwards. But when, continues Sir Thomas More, the news was first brought to the unfortunate mother, yet being in sanctuary, that her two sons were murdered. It struck to her heart, like the sharp dart of death. She was so suddenly amazed, that she swooned and fell to the ground, and there lay in great agony, like a dead corpse. And after she was revived and came to her memory again, she wept and sobbed, and with pitiful screeches filled the whole mansion. Her breast she beat, her fair hair she teared and pulled in pieces, and calling by name her sweet babes, accounted herself mad when she delivered her younger son out of sanctuary, for his uncle to put him to death. After long lamentation, she kneeled down and cried to God to take vengeance, who, she said, she never doubted would remember it. And when in a few months, Richard unexpectedly lost his only son, the child for whose advancement he had steeped his soul in crime, Englishmen declared that the imprecation of the agonized mother had been heard. The wretched queen's health sank under the load of intense anguish, inflicted by these murders, which had been preceded by the illegal execution of her son, Lord Richard Grey, and of her noble-minded brother at Pontefract. 
she was visited in sanctuary by a priest physician, Dr. Lewis, who likewise attended Margaret Beaufort, mother to Henry Tudor, Earl of Richmond, then in exile in Bretagne. The plan of uniting the Princess Elizabeth with this last scion of the House of Lancaster was first suggested to the desolate queen by Dr. Lewis. She eagerly embraced the proposition, and the good physician becoming, by means of daily visits, the medium of negotiation between the two mothers, the queen finally agreed to recognize Henry Tudor as King of England, if he were able to dispossess the usurper, and obtain the hand of her daughter. Buckingham, having been disgusted by Richard, his partner in crime, rose in arms. The queen's son, Dorset, had escaped out of sanctuary by the agency of his friend Lovell, one of the tyrant's ministers, raised an insurrection in Yorkshire, with the queen's valiant brother, Sir Edward Woodville, but, on Buckingham's defeat, fled to Paris, where he continued the treaty for the marriage of his half-sister, the Princess Royal, and Henry Tudor. After the utter failure of Buckingham's insurrection, Elizabeth was reduced to despair, and finally was forced to leave sanctuary, and surrender herself and daughters into the hands of the usurper, March 1484. For this step she was blamed severely, by those who have not taken a clear and close view of the difficulties of her situation. She had probably, in the course of ten months, exhausted her own means, and tried the hospitality of the monks at Westminster. Moreover, though the king could not lawfully infringe the liberty of sanctuary, he could cut off supplies of food and starve out the inmates, and he kept a guard of soldiers round the abbey, commanded by John Nesfield, who watched all comers and goers. Elizabeth, however, would not leave her retreat, without exacting a solemn oath, guaranteeing the safety of her children from Richard, which the usurper took in the presence of the Lord Mayor and Aldermen, as well as the Lords of the Council. The terms of Elizabeth's surrender are peculiarly bitter, for it is evident that she and her daughters not only descended into the rank of mere private gentlewomen, but she herself was held in personal restraint, since the annuity of seven hundred marks, allotted by Act of Parliament for her subsistence, was to be paid, not to her, but to John Nesfield, squire of the body of King Richard, for the finding, exhibition, and attendance of Dame Elizabeth Grey, late calling herself Queen of England. Thus Elizabeth had not a servant she could call her own, for this myrmidian of King Richard's was to find her, not only with food and clothes, but attendants. After leaving sanctuary, some obscure apartments in the palace of Westminster are supposed to have been the place of her abode. From thence she wrote to her son Dorset at Paris, to put an end immediately to the treaty of marriage between the Earl of Richmond and the Princess Elizabeth, and to return to her. The parties who had projected the marriage were struck with consternation, and greatly incensed at the queen's conduct, but these steps were the evident result of the personal restraint she was then enduring. If Richard III chose to court her daughter as his wife, Queen Elizabeth ought to be acquitted of blame, for it is evident that if she had been as yielding in the matter as commonly supposed, she would not have been under the control of John Nesfield. The successful termination of the expedition undertaken by the Earl of Richmond to obtain his promised bride and the crown of England at once avenged the widow queen and her family on the usurper and restored her to liberty. 
Instead of being under the despotic control of the royal hunchback's man at arms, the queen made joyful preparation to receive her eldest daughter, who was brought to her at Westminster from Sheriff Hutton, with honor, attended by a great company of noble ladies. Queen Elizabeth had the care of her daughter till the January following the Battle of Bosworth, when she saw her united in marriage to Henry of Richmond, the acknowledged King of England. One of Henry the Seventh's first acts was to invest the mother of his queen with the privileges and state befitting her rank as the widow of an English sovereign. She had never been recognized as queen dowager, excepting in the few wrangling privy councils that intervened between the death of her husband and her retreat into the Abbey of Westminster, and even during these, her advice had been disregarded and her orders defied. Therefore, to Henry the Seventh, her son-in-law, she owed the first regular recognition of her rights as widow of an English sovereign. Unfortunately, Elizabeth had not been dowered on lands anciently appropriated to the queens of England, but on those of the Duchy of Lancaster, which Henry the Seventh claimed as heir of John of Gaunt. However, a month after the marriage of her daughter to Henry the Seventh, the Queen Dowager received possession of some of the dower palaces, among which Waltham, Farnham, Mashabury, and Bado may be noted. Henry likewise adds a pension of a hundred and two pounds per annum from his revenues. The scandalous entries on the parliamentary rolls, whereby she was deprived of her dower in the preceding reign, were ordered by the judges to be burnt, their first lines only being read, because from their falseness and shamefulness they were only deserving of utter oblivion. Although so much has been said in history regarding Henry the Seventh's persecution of his mother-in-law, this, the only public act passed regarding her, which appears on the rolls, is marked with delicacy and respect. If she were deprived of her rights and property once more, no evidence exists of the fact, excepting mere assertion nor are assertions, even of contemporaries, to be credited without confirmatory documents, at any era, when a country was divided into factions, furious as those which kept the reign of Henry the Seventh in continual ferment. It is possible that Henry the Seventh personally disliked his mother-in-law, and in this he was by no means singular, for there never was a woman who contrived to make more personal enemies, but that he ever deprived her of either property or dignity remains yet to be proved. This queen had passed through a series of calamities, sufficient to wean the most frivolous person from pleasure and pageantry. She had to mourn the untimely deaths of three murdered sons, and she had four daughters wholly destitute, and dependent on her for their support. It can therefore scarcely be matter of surprise, that in the decline of life, she seldom shared in the gaieties of her daughter's court. Nevertheless, she appeared there frequently enough to invalidate the oft-repeated assertions that she fell into disgrace with the king for encouraging the rebellions of the Earl of Lincoln and Lambert Simnel. Was such conduct possible? The Earl of Lincoln had been proclaimed heir to the throne by Richard III, and as such, was the supplanter of all her children, and Lambert Simnel represented a youth who was the son of Clarence, her enemy, and the grandson of the mighty Earl of Warwick, the sworn foe of all the house of Woodville. 
However, at the very time she is declared to be in disgrace for such unnatural partiality, she was chosen by the king, in preference to his own beloved mother, as sponsor to his dearly prized heir, Prince Arthur. On September 20th, 1486, Elizabeth of York gave birth to an heir, and on Sunday following, her mother, the Queen Dowager, stood godmother to him in Westminster Cathedral. After describing the procession in which the Princess Sicily carried the infant, the historian adds, Queen Elizabeth was in the cathedral, abiding the coming of the prince. She gave a rich cup of gold, covered, which was borne by Sir Davy Owen. The Earl of Derby gave a gold salt, and the Lord Maltravers gave a coffer of gold, these standing with the queen as sponsors. Soon afterwards, Henry Seventh sought to strengthen his interest in Scotland, by negotiating a marriage between James the Third and his mother-in-law, a husband certainly young enough to be her son. Yet his violent death alone prevented her from wearing the crown matrimonial of Scotland, when she would have been placed in a situation to injure her son-in-law, if such had been her wish. The last time the Queen Dowager appeared in public was in a situation of the highest dignity. The Queen Consort had taken to her chamber, previously to her accouchement in the close of the year 1489, when her mother, Elizabeth Woodville, received the French ambassador in great state, assisted by Margaret, the king's mother. The next year, Henry VII presented his mother-in-law with an annuity of 400 pounds. No surrender of lands of equal value has yet been discovered. Yet, strange to say, historians declare she was stripped of everything, because about this time, she retired into the convent of Bermondsey. Here she had every right to be, not as a prisoner, but as a cherished and highly honored inmate. For the prior and monks of Bermondsey were solemnly bound, by the deeds of their charter, to find hospitality for the representatives of their great founder, Clare, Earl of Gloucester, in the state rooms of the convent. Now Edward the Fourth was heir to the Clares, and Elizabeth, Queen Dowager, had every right, as his widow, to appropriate the apartments expressly reserved for the use of the founder. She had a right of property there, and as it was the custom in the Middle Ages, for royal persons to seek monastic seclusion when health declined, not only for devotional purposes, but for medical advice, where could Elizabeth better retire, than to a convent bound by its charter to receive her? Eighteen months after, she was seized with a fatal illness at Bermondsey, and on her deathbed, dictated the following will. In the name of God, etc., 10th April, 1492, I, Elizabeth, by the grace of God, Queen of England, late wife to the most victorious prince of blessed memory, Edward the Fourth, Item, I bequeath my body to be buried with the body of my lord at Windsor, without pompous interring or costly expenses done thereabout. Item, whereas I have no worldly goods to do the queen's grace, my dearest daughter, a pleasure with, neither to reward any of my children, according to my heart and mind, I beseech God Almighty to bless her grace, with all her noble issue, and with as good a heart and mind as may be, I give her grace my blessing, and all the aforesaid my children. Item. I will that such small stuff and goods that I have be disposed truly in the contentation of my debts, and for the health of my soul, as far as they will extend. Item. 
that if any of my blood will wish to have any of my said stuff to me pertaining, I will they have the preferment before all others. And of this my present testament, I make and ordain my executors, that is to say, John Ingleby, prior of the Charter House of Sheen, William Sutton and Thomas Brent, doctors. And I beseech my said dearest daughter, the Queen's Grace, and my son Thomas, Marquis of Dorset, to put their good wills and help, for the performance of this my testament. In witness whereof to this my testament, these witnesses, John, Abbot of Bermondsey, and Benedict Coon, Doctor of Physic, given the year and day aforesaid. The daughter of Elizabeth attended her deathbed, and paid her affectionate attention. The queen alone was prevented, having taken to her chamber, preparatory to the birth of the princess Margaret. Elizabeth died the Friday before Whitsuntide, and as she expressed an earnest wish for speedy and private burial, her funeral took place on Whitsunday, 1492. Her will shows that she died destitute of personal property, but that is no proof of previous persecution, since several of our queens, who were possessed of the undivided dower appanage, and whose children were provided for, died not much richer. Indeed, it was not easy, that era, for persons, who had only a life income, to invest their savings securely, therefore they seldom made any. Elizabeth had four daughters wholly dependent on her for support, since the calamities of the times had left them dowerless, and, after the death of their mother, the queen, their sister, was much impoverished by their maintenance. The great possessions of the House of York were chiefly in the grasp of the old avaricious duchess, Sicily of York, who survived her hated daughter-in-law several years. Edward the Fourth had endowed his proud mother as if she were a queen dowager, while his wife was dowered on property to which he possessed no real title. Some discontented Yorkists, who witnessed the parsonomious funeral of Elizabeth, has described it, and preserved the interesting fact, that the only lady who accompanied the corpse of the queen, on its passage from the river to Windsor Castle, was one Mistress Grace, a natural daughter of Edward the Fourth. On Whit Sunday, the Queen Dowager's corpse was conveyed by water to Windsor, and there privily, through the little park, conducted unto the castle, without any ringing of bells or receiving of the dean, but only accompanied by the prior of the Charter House, and Dr. Brent, Mr. Hout, and Mistress Grey, a bastard daughter of King Edward the Fourth, and no other gentlewoman, and, as it was told to me, the priest of the college received her in the castle, Windsor, and so privily, about eleven of the clock, she was buried, without any solemn dirge done for her obit. On the morn thither came oddly, Bishop of Rochester, to do the office, but that day nothing was done solemnly for her saving. Also a hearse, such as they use for the common people, with wooden candlesticks about it, and a black pall of cloth of gold on it, four candlesticks of silver gilt, every one having a taper of no great weight. On the Tuesday hither came, by water, King Edward's three daughters, the Lady Anne, the Lady Catherine, and the Lady Bridget, the nun princess, from Dartford, accompanied by the Marchioness of Dorset, the daughter of the Duke of Buckingham, the Queen's niece, the daughter of the Marquis of Dorset, Lady Herbert, also niece to the Queen, Dame Catherine Grey, Dame Guilford, governess to the children of Elizabeth of York. Their gentlewomen walked behind the three daughters of the dead. 
Also that Tuesday came the Marquis of Dorset, son to the Queen, the Earl of Essex, her brother-in-law, and the Viscount Wells, her son-in-law. And that night began the dirge. But neither at the dirge were the twelve poor men clad in black, but a dozen divers old men. That is, old men dressed in the many-colored garments of poverty. And they held old torches and torches' ends. And the next morning on the cannons, called Master Vaughan, sang Our Lady Mass, at the which the Lord Dorset offered a piece of gold. He kneeled at the hearse head. The ladies came not to the Mass of Requiem, and the Lord sat about in the choir. My Lady Anne came to offer the Mass penny, and her officers at arms went before her. She offered the penny at the head of the Queen, wherefore she had the carpet and the cushion. And the Viscount Wells took his wife's offering, and Dame Catherine Grey bare the Lady Anne's train. Every one of the king's daughters offered. The Marquis of Dorset offered a piece of gold, and all the lords at their pleasure. The poor knights of Windsor, Dean, Canons, Yeomen, and officers at arms, all offered, and after Mass, the Lord Marquis paid the cost of the funeral. At the east end of St. George's Chapel, North Isle, is the tomb of Edward the Fourth, being a monument of steel, representing a pair of gates between two towers, of ancient Gothic architecture. On a flat stone at the foot of this monument are engraven, in Old English characters, the words, King Edward and his Queen, Elizabeth Woodville. In 1810, when the place of sepulchre for the family of George III was in course of preparation at the east end of St. George's Chapel, an excavation was formed in the solid bed of chalk of the full size of the edifice above, when two stone coffins containing the bodies of Queen Elizabeth Woodville and her son Prince George were discovered, fifteen feet below the surface, thus realizing the emphatic words of Southey. Thou, Elizabeth, art here, thou to whom all griefs are known, who wert placed upon the bier in happier hour than on a throne. End of section 20. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.